We have loved being here with your church again. We have loved staying in the beautiful place that we found to stay in, in the upper room. And we have enjoyed your good food. Um, Heaven will be, um, we hope. Thank you for coming tonight. We want to take you to New Guinea again. The lady who made this next DVD is our hospital director, Dr. Erin Meyer. And she is from your state. Do you know the town? Aaron's town. We can't tell you where in your state. <laughs> she came to us as a World Medical Mission volunteer. I found her at Franklin Graham's uh, place. And um, she was looking for a place to serve right out of family practice training. I said, I know a place you could serve. And she came to be with us for those two years. And then she became a Nazarene member and joined us and now she actually is the administrative head of the doctors and uh, medical staff and she made this dvd of our work there after that i'm going to tell you a few stories but i hope you have some questions that i can answer after that let's watch
makes you want to go, doesn't it? it? It does us. So thank you for your prayers as we head back there in January for six weeks. And we're asking the Lord to enable us. Um, we're not as young as we were the first time we went over there. But we pray that the Lord will make us a blessing and uh, use us in his will. I'll tell you a couple stories, and I hope you're thinking of your questions. Now, some of you probably ought to write them down because you'll forget. So if you have a question, write it down, and we're going to have a question and answer time. came to our hospital. She was two years old, and her mother and father had noticed a huge bulge in her abdomen. I examined her, and we ordered some x-rays and tests. Anna had a tumor of her kidney called a Wilms tumor. It's um, a aggressive cancer that forms in the kidney. And we scheduled Anna for the surgery the next day. We do the pediatric surgery cases first because those children can't not eat. And so we put them first on the list. I told Margaret, I said, get the vascular instruments because there's a lot of blood supply that supplies the kidney and make sure we have some 2-0 silk suture. Those are really good for tying down on blood vessels, arteries, and veins. I went to the house at the end of the day, not knowing there was anything wrong, but Margaret, my scrub nurse, who was in the picture with the 40th cake, she's been there 40 years as our scrub nurse. And uh, Margaret was worried that night because she searched and searched, and there was no silk suture for that surgery the next day. I walked in in the morning, the next morning, and Margaret was all smiles. And me not knowing what was wrong, I said, Margaret, uh, what are you so happy about today? She said, I thought you would have to cancel this little girl's surgery because we didn't have any silk suture. But guess what was in the mail this morning that a missionary brought a box that they had received through the post office, probably sent months before, in the top of that box was a suture pack of 2-0 silk suture. So Anna could have her surgery. We were able to give her chemotherapy as well. And the Lord touched her body from that cancer. God knows what we need. He knows when we need it. And he knows how to supply it. And you have seen that, those of you that have gone on work and witness. We heard last night the stories. Wayna came to our hospital he was a mess. He was drunk. He had gone to the market in his drunkenness about how, with his bush knife, his machete, he had cut off another man's leg from the neighboring tribe the year before. Now, the market is shared by a number of tribes, and the tribesmen of the man who had lost his leg the year before gathered around Wena and did what we call payback. It's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth in that culture without Christ. So they brought him to the hospital. He had been severely uh, chopped in both legs, and we did have to complete two amputations that night, one on each leg. Now I looked at Margaret after the case, and I said, Margaret, we really need to pray and ask others to pray because these two tribes live on either side of the hospital. And I said, there could be further retribution, tribal fighting. This might close us down. Margaret, who is a real prayer warrior, she's our district missionary president. 
and she has prayed for our family, and she fasts and prays every Thursday. Margaret looked to me and said, Dr. Jim, it won't help to pray. This will happen. I thought, wow, this is serious. This is such a deeply ingrained cultural payback system that we may have a tribal fight. And many of our students and our staff come from the tribes on either side of the hospital. So I went home and using technology, which I don't know how to use much, but I sent out an email to everybody on our prayer list, everybody that got our newsletters by email. I said, please pray for this problem. This could be a disaster. There could be uh, people that are seeking to end others' lives tonight. That night, Wayna's family, his tribal uh, brothers, did, under cover of darkness, leave their village, went around the hospital to the other village, thinking to do payback, thinking to spill blood, thinking to end people's lives. But when they got to the neighboring village, there was not a single baby crying. There were no dogs barking, and there are hundreds of dogs. There, were no, there was no smoke rising out of the huts because everyone has a cooking fire in the middle of their bush hut. Complete silence. And they assumed that the tribe that had done this had moved away and had gone hiding in the bush, in the jungle. But they were there. We asked around. We heard they had gone there, and we asked around. They were there, but God had put a holy hush on the village. God had heard the prayers of the people that I sent that email to, and we never did see tribal fighting over that injury. Now, I did get a reprimand from the regional office of the Church of the Nazarene in Manila because I had sent them the same prayer request, and they said, please never send out those kind of alarming prayer requests. We'll get a lot of concerned people emailing us. And so uh, I took them off my email prayer list. (laughs) I don't want them to be alarmed. But God heard the prayers of his people and spared us and spared Wayne's life as well. Masa was one of my very first patients. Masa was a young boy, 12 years of age, and he was at the marketplace, and a tribal fight came through right in front of the hospital. Masa was in the wrong place at the wrong time. He was from the wrong tribe, and so even though he was an innocent boy, he was stabbed in the back with a knife. When I was called to see him in the emergency room, there were no signs of life. He, he had no blood pressure or pulse. We quickly got him on a uh, trolley and ran him back to the operating room. Uh, I just splashed iodine across his abdomen and started in. He did not need an anesthetic. They intubated him and started breathing for him, but he was already comatose from the loss of blood. When I got inside his abdomen, there was so much bleeding and blood loss and blood clot, I really couldn't tell what was bleeding. I was working with the family practice doctor. At that time, there were just two of us. Before I arrived, there was just one of us. There was one of him. So now we made two doctors and we worked together. And, and I said, um, I think we should pray. Now, it's not the best idea to have a long prayer meeting when someone's bleeding to death. But man, we had a short one. We said, Lord, help us to find the source of this bleeding. 
help us to save this young boy's life. And as soon as we finished praying, the family doc gave me some good advice, which I should have known to do. But he said, let's just go in the back of that retroperitoneum. We'll go through the blood clot and see what's, what's bleeding down there deeper. And we did that. And it was his renal artery on his right kidney. We had to take out the kidney. We were able to get the bleeding stopped. Masa never woke up during the case. When we took him, when we finished his surgery, he was still in a coma. We took him back to the semi-private ward of 30 beds. Uh, emphasis on semi. And for three days, he was in a coma because he had not had enough blood flow to his brain. So now we had a second prayer asking the Lord to bring him back to mental status. And the Lord on the third day woke him up. And he was in his right mind. And then we presented the gospel to Masa. And Masa, after he went home to his village, some missionaries visited him there. And he gave his heart and life to Jesus. Now Masa had never been to school, so he started going to school. And then he went to a bivocational pastor's training school. And then he started sharing Jesus in youth meetings. And he led a revival movement in his church. About five years ago, Masa completed the course of study to become a Nazarene pastor. And he went to district assembly. And he had pastored a number of churches. He had been a circuit pastor for several churches. And they gave him churches that were really far out in the bush. When you got to Masa's church, you were literally at the end of the world. Masa was hoping to be ordained, but he didn't see his name on the list. But just before the, the service of ordination, the district superintendent said, why aren't you dressed up in your suit, coat, and tie? And he said, because my name's not on the list. He said, you're to be ordained tonight. The district superintendent did not remember his name was Masa. He had put his name down as Moses. And that night, when the general superintendent placed his, head, his hands on Masa's head, he said, we ordained this man as Moses. And Masa said, God did a miracle. He not only saved my life, saved my soul, but he gave me a new name. And he said, I will be like Moses and I will bring my people to Jesus. Because you gave and you sent us and you prayed, Masa is ministering tonight in the Church of the Nazarene. He doesn't have a seminary degree. But he knows the Lord, and he's serving Jesus in a far-off place. And someday, we will meet him in heaven, and he will say thank you for your giving to the Lord. Do you have any questions? Something we've said or something you watched on the, on the screen? They have the same language. Uh, they're only from different ancestral forefathers. Yep. And they have some history. <laughs> they have some, something like that. Yeah. It's like Ohio State and Penn State. <laughs> yes, sir.
we do not, and this has been unusual for me to come back. He's asking, do we have the same degree of technology in our medical offices there that we do here? We don't. We rely on a good history, history of illness, and a physical exam. And I think sometimes in America, the physical exam um, becomes less important because we've got MRIs and CAT scans and all kinds of stuff. We also have a number of ultrasound machines. And my son has a little ultrasound probe that fits onto his iPhone. So he has one right there on rounds wherever he needs to do an ultrasound. So we use ultrasound a lot. Like we use ultrasound to see if there's been a, if there's gallstones or inflammation or appendicitis or a pelvic problem or blood in the abdomen, all kinds of things. Uh, So ultrasound is very, very useful. It's low tech. It's cheap. It's reproducible, um, and you don't have to have a specialist to read it. But we don't have a lot of technology. There is now, I I never had CT scan when I was practicing, but about an hour from our hospital is a major government hospital that does have a CAT scan machine now. We don't do cataract surgery there. So I'm glad you had it here. The population is very young uh, in most developing countries. Um, The longevity would be maybe 60. There are some older people, but not too many. Um, So lots of young people, lots of children and youth. Tropical and infectious diseases are very prevalent there. Malaria kills a lot of people still. Uh, Worldwide, malaria is still a major player. Um, They have typhoid there. They have lots of pneumonia, lots of meningitis in the children, lots of um, um, gastroenteritis and dehydration. Uh, Then trauma is very big. We have not only tribal fighting, there's a lot of domestic fighting, the men that have multiple wives, that's not a happy situation for many of them. The wives fight amongst each other. The men beat their wives. The wives get back at the husband. So we have a lot of domestic violence, tribal violence. And then just um, developing countries have a lot of violence like poor roads, uh, very uh, unstable vehicles. So sometimes we'll have a whole truckload of people where the truck turned over because of a bad road condition and nobody was in seat belts or anything. So a lot of trauma deaths and infectious disease. Cancer is, is also a big player because there's no preventative uh, type of things. Uh, people don't go in for colonoscopies or annual mammograms or anything like that. So the, uh, cancer presents late and, and is a major player. Average income. Now, I should know that answer. It would be maybe a couple thousand dollars if they have some coffee trees. I mean, most most of the people are subsistence farmers. Their next meal is out in the garden. When they go to get it out of the garden, their their sweet potato, which they call cow-cow, that's their next meal. They may have a few heads of chickens and a few pigs, and their wealth is tied up in their pigs. They're only eaten on ceremonial times like at weddings or special feasts. Um, so not, not very well to do. 
Well, you saw the tents set up. Those aren't usually there. Those were to screen COVID patients. So COVID took a while to get there because it's an isolated island, but it did get there, and it was devastating. Um, I missed COVID here. Uh, I had gotten the vaccines, and I had helped to give them, but I waited until I got to New Guinea to get to the Omicron virus there, and I missed about five days of work and was able to go back to work. So it was a player, and it did keep... We couldn't get work and witness teams for two years or volunteers, so it was tough to get in and out. Um, now it's free. Well, you have to pay for the ticket. <laughs> yes. Good question. We just now have a newer maternity ward, and we have, for the first time, our first lady gynecologist uh, obstetrician has come. Uh, we do have midwives there who are trained. Um, they don't have cultural midwives so much, although there are some uh, experienced women in some of the villages that help out. And for a while, we were training village midwives. We would train people to go out and do that. I don't know where we are on that currently. Um, Maternal mortality is one of the worst ones in the world in Papua New Guinea. Several reasons from that, because the worth of a woman in a polygamous society uh, is not as high as it should be, and because there's strong cultural taboos for a man even being anywhere near the woman, many of our women go out into the bush to deliver by themselves. Then if they don't deliver, they call for help and they're taken to a health center. Then if they can't deliver, they come to the hospital. So we have a lot of severe uh, maternal and child mortality from that. Um, so it's a great place that needs lots of midwifery. You're right. And we do have midwives working at our hospital and in some of the health centers. That's probably the surgery I did the most over the 32 years, uh, up to five a day. Women in uh, developing countries, when nutrition was poor, they were small, and their pelvises are small. And then times get a little bit better, and they have more food as they get pregnant. And so they have larger babies when nutrition is better than their pelvis can deliver. And so there's sometimes a generation uh, that they go through. New Guinea overall has 5 million people. In our province, which would be like the state of Pennsylvania, we are the only hospital. So the government is supposed to support us like their own, but they don't. I think we are the main health facility for a quarter of a million people. So we have about 12 to 15 health centers that refer to us. And under those health centers are little clinics called aid posts. So each health center would have a series of aid posts underneath it. The idea was that within walking distance of every villager, there would be some limited health available. That's actually not the case, but that was the goal. We have tried to put forth 
along with the village midwife training, was a village-based healthcare concept where we would go into a village, help them to assess what they were concerned about, what they were dying from, and then what we could do to help them. Clean water, toilets, um, vaccines were appropriate, um, helping the mothers. Um, so community-based health care is one of the real needs in a country like Papua New Guinea. But it's not always easily done. Matt and Tammy Woodley. Um, Tammy's training. She's a teacher by training. So she has been involved in the missionary kids school. We have lots of young families now and more families coming with four and five children this year. So we have lots of missionary kids to educate and Tammy has been in charge of that school. Now this year, because her own kids are in the school as well, she asked the other moms to help out. So each mother is taking one subject and I think she's helping to coordinate it. Matt is in charge of the emergency room and the training that occurs in the emergency room. He's an ER physician and he has two new post-resident fellows in missionary medicine coming to join him, and they are two of the families that have lots of kids. And Franklin Graham's outfit, World Medical Mission, is sending them to come and to learn with us what it's like to be, to be a missionary doctor, and then they'll decide if they want to stay with us or go with someone else. Or So they are very involved. They're also very involved in something I haven't talked about yet, which is an HIV orphanage that is run by a lay couple. Well, he's, she's a pastor, and he's a lay carpenter, and there's a family near the hospital that has started an orphanage for children that have lost their parents to HIV. And she has about 50 youngsters living there, and because of the stigma, uh, when they go to school, a regular school, she has actually started a school there, and Tammy and... Matt have been very influential and involved in helping to support that orphanage. So Tammy has also been involved on the mission station with uh, women's work and children's work. Thank you for praying for them. I sent them an email this afternoon saying you guys were remembering them. So remember them. <laughs> yes. Everything here is specialized, so you don't want to step on someone else's toes for whom that is their livelihood. Plus, if you do something wrong and you are outside of your sphere, you're medically legally liable. Um, that's not the case over there. So for many years, when there were just a few of us, we had to do everything. Um, so you would deliver a baby and do an autopsy and see outpatients. And, but... Um, so that's what we try to train the New Guinea doctors to, is to increase their skill level and their comfort level 
so that they can all do C-sections and help in difficult labor and delivery situations. They can take care of children and adults. They can take care of trauma patients. Um, And so one of the things we've done in training is to take the New Guinea doctors and uh, give them enough surgery that they can do enough emergency surgery to take care of a lot of the things if they get posted somewhere in the in the bush nurses nurses do so much in new guinea um, because there's not enough doctors so lots of times all those small clinics are run by nurses only like all the 20 that refer to our hospital and so they do regular suturing Um, they are taught to do regular deliveries the doctor only gets called if it's a real problem. So the nurses diagnose lots of illnesses and treat them using standard treatment books. Um, it, it's really a good system, and they are some excellent, uh, excellent nurses. For years and years, we did not have a dental clinic. Interestingly enough, the first doctor assigned to the New Guinea Hospital uh, back in the 60s, was a dentist and a doctor both. He was Dr. Power's son. And after he left, after only being there a year, then the dental clinic closed until recently. And now we have a full-blown dental clinic with the ability to get good dental films, uh, really state-of-the-art stuff, and uh, they can do a lot of good work. Um, right now, we don't have a missionary dentist, but we have a national dentist, who is well qualified, and they send us uh, residents up from the dental uh, department of the university. For fun and recreation, we played lots of sports on the mission station. They play a lot of volleyball. They occasionally play softball. There's a nice basketball court, which was used a lot. Um, there was Matt Woodley is involved in teaching the young missionary kids the the rules of soccer and helps them with a soccer game weekly there's a river right by the mission station and there's a favorite swimming hole in the river called Suicide Rocks because if you don't know how to swim that's where the natives used to go to end their lives so it's not a place for young children. <laughs> There's lots of fun hiking around the mission station to the mountains overlooking. So those were some of the things to get involved with. We've been thinking a lot about the temperature there this weekend. Um, it gets down to six, it's 60 degrees there now, which is the low for the day, and it gets up to 80 in the daytime. So where the hospital is, is one mile high. So we're more temperate. If we were on the coast, it's very tropical, like the equator. Uh, It's near the equator, so it's very hot and humid on the coast, but it's very temperate in the highlands. They'd only have wet and dry season. So right now it is dry season because we were supposed to pray for rain last week. So in the dry season, they like to see rain once or twice a week but sometimes a week or two will go by where there's none in the wet season it rains once or twice a day sometimes several inches all right it's december here so it's wet season there wet season's about to start 
and we rely on the roof to catch the rainwater. That's our drinking water in New Guinea. So every roof is metal, and we catch all the rain, including for the hospital, uh, and store it. Yes, Crystal. You don't always have to have a prescription for some of the things we do here. Uh, Medicine can be expensive, though, if you go to the pharmacy because they are not charitable organizations. We get our medicines mostly from the government-based medical store, but when that fails, we try to buy through wholesalers, and then we do get quite a bit of donated supplies of things through the Nazarene Hospital Foundation, which is in Oregon. And they get a lot of, they have a small warehouse where they store, store things, and they send us four or five containers a year. But that also was a difficult thing with COVID because the containers got held up. But that really helps out a lot. And you guys have sent the baby, the warm baby supplies and the cervical cancer supplies, which has been a very nice benefit for, for our ladies. We have certain types of cancer there more often than you do here. So, and cervical cancer is one of them. Prime Minister is what they have. I'm afraid not. (laughs) And as you know from our own experience, not everyone who says they're a born-again Christian turns out to be a true Christ follower. But um, we have had some people who have honored God, and uh, there was a recent election. They're still waiting for the aftermath of that election because there's some contested uh, voting counts and stuff. But, yeah. Anyone else? So please do pray. Um, Pray for some of the needs that you have highlighted here. Um, Women's birthing needs is a real prayer need. Uh, In the years we were there, the 30 years, in the last 50 years, uh, maternity problems have gotten worse instead of better. Because 50 years ago, Australia was in charge of the health care and they demanded certain things be done. And as people have lost confidence in the medical providers, as health centers were without nurses or supplies, sometimes without oxygen, the women lost confidence in going to the hospital. So, um, yeah, that's one of the things we need to address. That's a good question. She asked if all the treatment is free, and it's not. So we charge a minimal amount, which does help to cover the cost, but more importantly, it makes them think it's worth something. So if you come to us with a knife in your neck, we do not ask you for payment first. But we will ask you why you're in the hospital, 
and figure out what you could pay. So for a, for a hospital admission, it's maybe $20, $30 to be admitted and maybe $50 to have major surgery. So it does help us, uh, but it helps them to appreciate it that it's worth something. And so your family will get together to pay that and to make the decision about whether they want you to have the surgery. So many people come by the government hospitals to get to us because they know we will pray with patients. Now we have Christian nurses and they pray with patients. Our nurses on every shift at the change of shift have a, 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 worldwide, uh, a world a ward devotions that includes the staff and the patients. So several times a day there is prayer in the wards. There are services in the wards. And our chaplains try to see every patient. We have five chaplains. But in addition to that, our doctors pray with the patients. So my practice was I would pray with people as I admitted them, either in the emergency room or out of the clinic, elective or emergency, we would pray that the Lord would help us and guide us and enable us and heal them. Then uh, before surgery, before they went to sleep, we would pray again. Uh, sometimes in the middle of surgery, when things weren't going well, we would have a short prayer. And then we would have a prayer of praise when the, when the Lord did a miraculous deliverance there uh, in the surgery suite. And then a lot of times as I discharge a patient, there's a spiritual history sheet on the back of the chart. And I would look at that to see what the status of the patient was if I didn't know. Because the chaplains and nurses were able to write things in there too. So before I discharged them, I would see, did they make a commitment to Christ? Were they already a Christian? Were they going to some church? And so we can have a, a prayer of dismissal then as well. So prayer was very, very important. And one of the things they've asked me to do when I go back, on my way out of the country coming back this way, I'm supposed to stop at the medical school there in Port Moresby and give a talk to the Christian medical and dental students on how to pray with patients. So I would covet your prayers. I haven't asked any other group to do that, but I'm right now trying to make my own notes and study materials that the Christian Medical Dental Association has on this, but I want the Lord to use us in that way to, to help them see that this is really a possibility. And you can do it sensitively with the patient's permission, uh, but in New Guinea, at our hospital, that's why the patients are there. So they want to be prayed with. Anyone else? Thank you for your attention and thank you for your prayers and support. Thank you for being here. And, and uh, as I've said, uh, Jim and Kathy have just been so precious in my life. And I'm grateful for you and your witness and your story. And now hearing about your kids, that's just exciting as, uh, as your son and his family continues in that place that you served. And, uh, and uh, we'll be thinking about you when you go in January and pray for you on your trip and uh, uh, your time there. And, and uh, that's just fantastic. Scott has an offering plate. I had said this morning that all the offering uh, that comes in 
is sent to uh, Jim's request to go to deputation for his son. So uh, if you have an offering and want to put that in the plate, we'll add to that. And uh, we're so thankful. Uh, just if you make that plate available as people go out tonight. What a joy. What a privilege. I'd like to pray for Jim and Kathy and, and New Guinea. Would you stand together and uh, let's pray for them. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we're so grateful tonight for the privilege to hear from your servants and those that responded to your call many, many years ago and, and uh, that desire to uh, serve you in Papua New Guinea and the people that are there. I pray, God, for this work, this hospital, the doctors, the staff, the patients, the families. Lord, I think of the, the influence that this hospital has on uh, all of that country and the thousands of patients uh, that are seen year in and year out and prayed with. And uh, just thankful for that, many of them that have come to faith in Christ. I pray for Jim and Kathy as they travel back uh, in January and serve there uh, as their son goes to Thailand for this, uh, this uh, conference and time period. And for all the doctors that are able to go to that, we pray for this time especially. We pray, God, about the challenges in Papua New Guinea, as Jim's talked about, the, uh, the, the new mothers and uh, uh, the challenges medically and culturally and, Lord, uh, all the things that uh, are a part of everyday ministry there. Pray that you give strength to the doctors and wisdom and discernment. And, God, bring, bring uh, your kingdom to come in Papua New Guinea as it is in heaven, I pray. Thank you for the opportunity again to be here tonight and to share together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for coming. You're welcome to continue to, to pelt uh, Jim and, and Kathy with questions or have a chance to talk to them some more. Uh, uh, thank you for being here.